0: Romans 8 is one of those rich chapters. In fact, as I was thinking about Romans 8 and all that's there, and the, the change potential that is there, it reminded me of, a, of, a, of, a, of another story. It reminded me of the story of a man, uh, if I get his name right, Stephen Thomas. Stephen Thomas is a Bitcoin millionaire. Or at least he could be if only he could remember his password. You see, Bitcoin is a digital currency, and back in 2011, Stefan Thomas did a video, a little animated video, explaining how digital currency works. And um, in in um, payment for that little animated video, he was paid in, of course, a digital currency. He was given 7,002 Bitcoin. In 2001, it was worth about twenty-one dollars. Now, there's an encryption key that you must have in order to retrieve that currency and do anything with it. And uh, so that encryption key was safely stored on, on what's called an iron key hard drive. This iron key is a very secure hard drive. It can only be accessed if you put in the password. And if you don't have the right password, after 10 attempts, all of the contents of the the hard drive will be erased so that it couldn't fall into others' hands. Completely safe and secure. Nobody else will get your data. Well... A Bitcoin that was worth $21 in 2011, those 7,002 Bitcoin, are now worth about $350 million. If only he could remember the password to his iron key hard drive so that he could get at that encryption key again. He's tried eight times With eight passwords, and none of them are right, he's only got two left. He's put the hard drive away again in a a safe location, and he's tried to forget about it. Maybe someday, ten years from now, somebody will have a better password decrypting solution that can get him into his iron key hard drive, and he can recover his Bitcoin Whatever amount it is then worth, then this reminded me of of something that is worth so much, and imagine would be such a game changer in his life. Imagine the impact he could have on the lives of many if he only could access these riches that actually belong to him, and yet he doesn't know how. To get to them, there's something in a rough parallel there. To what God has done for us in the Holy Spirit, the richness of new life in Christ that God intends for us, that is such a game changer not only for us in living by the Spirit, but imagine the impact if through us to others, if we are in fact yielded and led and filled, yielded to and led and filled by the Spirit. That that the life of God is lived out in our lives, even as was in the life of Jesus. Imagine the 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 riches of life that are available to us. I and mean, yet, there's, there's there's a great misunderstanding and and non comprehension of how do we live by the Spirit? How do we walk in the Spirit? What is it to be led by the Spirit? And this is the core of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, if you, if, if, if you remember, I gave us an overview of the first eight chapters of Romans. Now, the first service did not do well at this. It was a grave discouragement to me. We're going to try it again. If you remember... Feel free to, to um, go along with me, even if your words aren't quite the same. Say something, mumble, move your lips, so I'll think you've got it. Although I can't see your lips, can I? Huh, that won't work. That, that one sentence overview of Romans 1-8 to 8 that I gave you of the gospel for sinners justified, chapter 4, by faith in Christ to new life by The Holy Spirit. That this life that we live in this flesh, chapter 7, is by the Holy Spirit, Romans chapter 8. The the Holy Spirit is the riches that opens up what really is the normal Christian life to any believer who has new life in Christ Jesus. It's, It's normal rather than unusual, and yet though normal, unfortunately, is not common. It's not necessarily the common experience of Christian believers to live in and be led by the Spirit as a normal way of life. We're going to talk a little bit about that more. How do we take a step into that? But there's so much in Romans 8. Oh, my goodness. There is so much here. The the theology that's evident, even at the surface, a surface reading of Romans chapter 8, you find the indwelling of the Spirit, you find the different persons of the Trinity at work concerning our salvation, you find our future physical resurrection promised, you find adoption into God's family, predestination, a theology of suffering. A providence of God working in the affairs of our lives, eternal security, intercession for us, praying for us by the Holy Spirit within and by the Son of God Jesus in heaven. And that's just the beginning of what's here. Much more that we could talk about this morning. But what I do want to do is I want to give you a framework, I want to give you an overview of Romans 8. And this is that you, we, we have an overview because of what's here, what God has done for us, kind of the capstone of our salvation, which fuels within us a trusting of God who gives us new life by his Spirit. We need to know these things, we need to soak in them a little bit, that we would trust God who gives new life by His Spirit. Because it's only if we trust God who gives new life by His Spirit that we will follow the leading of God by His Spirit in our lives. The Spirit's going to lead us in sometimes hard ways. He's going to lead us in difficult directions, things we wouldn't ourselves choose to do. That's the whole point. The the leading of the Spirit is going to be contrary to our natural inclinations. And so the only reason we're going to do that is if we trust God in where He is leading us. So the character of God, as described in the book of Romans, and in chapter 8 in particular, becomes very important to us if we're going to follow his leading then, the leading of the Spirit, which is for many of us the crux of the how do I live the Christian life? How do I live new even in this old body? By following the leading of the Spirit who who will lead me and who will also empower me then to do it giving me new strength. So I have an outline here, and it's printed on the sermon note sections in the back of that bulletin, and I have one sentence. Pastor Ryan and I worked on this this week, kind of back and forth a little bit, to try to come up with a one sentence for Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 in one sentence is, freedom from sin in Christ gives us new life by the Spirit, as God's children, for glory through suffering, fulfilling God's purposes for those secure in Jesus. There it is. There's Romans 8 and all that it contains in one sentence. And what I want to do now is spend about 12 minutes or so walking through that statement with some of the content of Romans chapter 8 as a whole. So the first four verses. Freedom, freedom. Freedom from sin in Christ, verses one to four. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you freed from the in Jesus Christ from the law of sin and death. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. We couldn't keep it. We couldn't follow through. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh in order that his righteous requirement might be fulfilled in us who do not live according to law, but who live according to the Spirit. What does that mean? We're going to talk about that further in Romans. He's just introduced the rest of the chapter in that last phrase of verse 4. Who walk not after the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Our death with Christ, our death in Christ declaws sin, freeing us to live by the Spirit in ways that will produce fruit in ways that will fulfill the requirements of the law, in ways that will live out the life of Christ. That'll be fulfilled in us because we've been freed from the hold of sin. It doesn't mean that we're not tempted. But I use the term declawed because I have a cat. And sometimes if you have a cat and the cat has claws, you get hurt. Right? Those little hooks will grab hold of you. Well, sin has been declawed. And she, she could, it can still bat us around, but it cannot grab hold of us and hook us that we cannot get away. That's the difference. It, 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 may, it may bat us around. It might want to toy with us and play with us, but it cannot grab hold of and control us. We are free to live following the Spirit. That is the new life we've been given. God gives us new life, and there's only two ways to live. There's this new life now in contrast to living according to the flesh. Living according to the flesh, in verse 5, is to set their minds on the things of the flesh, which the mind of the flesh is death, or to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. That's the new way of life that we've been given. And the mind of the Spirit is life and peace. There are two ways to live, flesh or spirit, and by flesh or spirit, that's going to set us on two different trajectories, away from God and fellowship with him or toward God and fellowship with him. And we live in that new life, in that new way, instead of the old, by the Spirit, verses 9 to 11. It's not a matter of, okay, well, buck up, buttercup, because you better live this way instead of that way so that you can be, belong to God instead of, of being condemned by sin. No, God has taken us out of that domain of darkness. He's transferred us into the kingdom of his Son. We have been taken out of Adam in chapter 5 and put into Christ. He has given us new life. That we, we died with Christ, chapter 6, in order that we'd be raised with Christ. All of that. He's, he said it a few different ways through the book of Romans, that we have a new reality. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Well, what does that mean? Is that a second level of Christian, that the Spirit of God? Some, some places you would hear something that, to that effect, but that's not what he's saying here. That, that you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if the Spirit of God dwells in you. And anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So everyone who belongs to Christ, everyone who is born again as a child of God by faith in Jesus, belongs to Christ and is indwelt by the Spirit of the living God. That is the new covenant. I will put my Spirit within them. And that happens because our guilt is removed. Our sin is gone. Our sin has been forgiven, removed, it's out of the way, so nothing hinders us from fellowship, relationship with God again. The Spirit could not come and indwell one who is condemned by guilt and sin. That's why Jesus also in his death is separated from God the Father. Why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken, separated by God, because he bore our sin. But once our sin is gone, removed, dealt with, paid in full, now now we are restored into relationship with God. We anticipate going to live with him, right? Right? But until that day, God instead has come to live with us by his spirit. Relationship restored into new life. And if Christ is in you, even though the body's dead and weak and mortal and, and pitiful and can't do much at all, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the spirit, if the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is dwelling in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. The Spirit gives us new life now, new life already. Already experiencing some of the new life that will be fully ours at the transformation of our bodies, which is spoken of in in, in following verses. So then, new life by the Spirit as God's children, verses 12 to 17. There's a new privilege that we have. We live not as we once were, who we once were. We now live as God's children, as God's own. So we're not obligated to live under the old way any longer. Maybe our natural body still wants to, longs to, is tempted to, but we don't have to. We don't exist there anymore. We have a new identity of which we can now live. It's not that we have two identities, flesh and spirit, and we can live to one or the other. The flesh still wants to claim its way, but I have been made new. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. There are not two of you, just one new you that is being renewed. Day by day, you are a work in progress, but in your identity have been made new in Jesus. We died with him and we have raised with him to live in his new life. I do not yet live all that I now am, but I no longer am who I once was. I do not yet live all that I now am, for I no longer am who I once was. I might still live some of what I once was, but I no longer am who I once was. I don't have to live that way. One of the young men in our our Monday study, kind of approaching the text for the week, um, starting off bright and early on on Monday morning, he, he, he suggested this example. He said, What if I had an old van? And it was an old van. It's, I mean, we, we drove it till about fell apart. And finally, one day, the engine did. And the engine is gone. It is self-destructed. It is done. The, the whole van as a whole is not far behind it. But the engine is finished. It has no power to go. We don't have the means to put another engine in this van. We need the van. But we've got this other engine over here. We've got a, a new charger engine. Wow. Now, there's some horsies. We've got this new charger engine, and I know the image doesn't really work because why do they have this new charger engine? Anyway, go with me. They have this new charger engine, and what if we took that new engine and we put that in the old van? Well, the old van won't yet drive fully like a charger, but that old van will go like she never went before, right? That's kind of what we can begin to experience already, something of the power and energy of the new life in Christ, which will be ours fully in transformation and eternity, but we already nibble around the edges of it. We already get some now of the not yet full realization. So then we're not obligated to flesh to keep living that way. We are led by the Spirit of God as the sons of God, by by putting to by the spirit putting to death the deeds of the body. We're going to talk more about that section 12 to 17 as God's children made new. For glory through suffering verses 18 to 25. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us. The creation itself is waiting, longing for the revealing of the sons of God, and the creation itself has been subject to futility, but will be restored. God, in a sense, puts the creation into futility as well as a result of the full fall and the thorns and thistles that it now grows, so that humanity still has a chance, having fallen so far, to still exercise something of the image of God in dominion over creation. The creation itself has been held back because of the fall of humanity, its head. And yet, the creation longs, we ourselves long for that future, even through present suffering to glory. We long for the future redemption of our bodies. That idea of through suffering, even being led by the Spirit through suffering, that's a, that's, that's an unusual thing today in terms of the Holy Spirit. That's not what a lot of people expect of the Holy Spirit. Contrary, I'm quoting one an author here, contrary to much of what is portrayed in religious television programming, the Holy Spirit was not given so that believers could enjoy ecstatic feel-good experiences. The Holy Spirit is not a spiritual narcotic with which we try to numb the pain in our lives. The the Holy Spirit is not a spiritual morphine. The Spirit lives in us to change us. The Spirit's main role is not to fix our circumstances or heal our mortal bodies. We groan, waiting for, ultimately, not the healing of our bodies, but the redemption, the transformation of our bodies into a new kind of body that is like His glorious body. A body that pandemics can't touch. A body that you don't even have to go through TSA at the airport because you can be here and then you can be there. And we won't need Jeff to fly us there any longer. I don't know what you're going to do, Jeff. You'll just go there with us, I guess. We live toward God's future through present suffering even as Jesus did. Why would it be a surprise that that the Spirit would lead us into suffering if that's where he led Jesus also? And so Henry Francis Light in the 1800s put it to a poem this way. My rest is in heaven, my rest is not here. Then why should I murmur when trials are near? Be hushed, my dark spirit, the worst that can come, but shortens the journey and hastens the home. Let doubt then in danger, my progress oppose. They only make heaven more sweet at the close. Come joy or come sorrow, whatever may befall, an hour with my God will make up for it all. Or perhaps you may have sung at some point, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. We live toward God's future glory, fulfilling, verses 26 to 30, God's purposes, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. He intercedes for us according to the will of God. And we know that those who love, for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are the called according to his purposes. It doesn't say that all things are good. There are many things that are not good, and yet God uses it for good. Imagine the frustration of the devil. Let me give you a couple of illustrations of this. Joseph. Joseph is sold by his brothers into slavery, winds up down in Egypt, and he's in prison. There's terrible things that happen there. And yet God uses it for good, and God raises him up so that Joseph later on tells his brother, you meant it for evil, but God used it for good to preserve you all alive. God used Joseph in Egypt to prepare a place for them in Egypt that they would survive through the famine. An even better example, one that Joseph's life is meant to portray and point to, is that is the brutal unjust murder of an innocent man whom the worst he ever did was to tell people the absolute truth they needed desperately and urgently to hear. His, his acts of, of rebellious sedition were simply healing those who desperately pled for healing. Some things somewhat minor, some things terrible that had never been healed before. Blindness and leprosy, even raising the dead. And what is the response to a life lived only in good and truth? He is brutally, horribly murdered in a political crucifixion. That's evil. The death of Jesus was evil. And can you imagine the jig that Satan dances when he has in fact murdered the Son of God? And yet, God used the worst evil the universe had ever seen to accomplish your and my and as many as who would believe their eternal redemption. What Satan himself means for evil, God will use it for good. Fulfilling God's eternal purposes in our redemption, the Holy Spirit helps us, intercedes, leads, and intervenes. Not all things are good, but God will do his good through it all. For those who are secure in Christ, what do we say then to these things? Verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? If he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not, with Jesus, graciously give us all things? Who is there to bring any charge against God's elect? It is God himself who justifies us. Who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died for us, rather that who was raised from the dead, who's at the right hand of God, in fact, interceding for us. Who is there that would separate us from the love of Christ? Shall, shall trouble or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Sure, this is our experience as it is written. For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep for the slaughter. No, no, those will not separate us. In all these things, in fact, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure. That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is for us, chose us, provides for us, justifies us, Christ died for us, intercedes for us, overcomes for us, loves us, so that Charles Haddon Spurgeon summed it up this way, or rather said this in response. There are many things that may or may not happen, but this I know shall happen. He shall present my soul, unblemished and complete, before the glory of his face, with joys divinely great. All the purposes of man have been defeated, but never the purposes of God. He is the promise-keeping God, and every one of his people shall prove it to be so. Here's Spurgeon's confidence, and every one of his people shall prove it to be so. You yourself might not be convinced of it in the midst of the circumstance you presently face. But when we've seen it all, and stand before his face every child of God will be further evidence that he is the promise-keeping God that we have been shown to believe. I could stop right there. We could just pause right there and say, this is the God in whom we trust. But if this is the God in whom we trust, this is the God in whom we must follow. As the chorus says, where he leads, I'll follow. Why? Because it's he. Because this is who he is. And if this is who he is, then we can trust him to follow the lead of God's life-giving spirit as we are called to do or, or we get a glimpse of doing in verses 12 to 15. So now let's go back and let's dig in a little deeper in verses 12 to 15. So then, brothers, in light of this, in light of all that God is doing, we are not indebted then. We are under no obligation then to keep living merely as human. We are under no obligation then to continue living merely as those who are in flesh creations because we are more than that. There's a new you. There's a new you that goes far beyond that. As a, as a child of God, as indwelt by His Spirit, as freed from the flesh and, and control of it in order to live new for God, even in these weak bodies. We are not obligated to live according to the flesh. Living according to the flesh leads to death. But living according to the Spirit, if you put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, there you will live. Our life in Christ is defined as by the Spirit putting to death the deeds of the flesh and living in Jesus' new life instead. Verse 12 is not a command. It's an indicative. It's a statement of fact. It's affirming to us something that is true about us, that we've been freed from an obligation to the past. We're free to live. And yet he's not calling us to that yet. He will in chapter 12. But he's telling you again, we are freed from any obligation of any trying to earn any manner of standing before God and approval. We are free. We have no obligation to what God has released us from. We are free to live in a new way. That new way is contrasted with the old way in verse 13. um, To live according to the flesh versus to live by the Spirit. We've been set free in verses 1 to 3 and able to live and walk by the Spirit, verse 4. Who indwells us, verse 9. You see how this flows together in Romans. So that if according to the Spirit you are putting to death the practices of the flesh, you will live. Paul's point here is that the believer's once-for-all death, that death to law and sin does not free you from the need to put to death sin in your members. It does not free us from the need to make an intentional conscious choice, but it makes it possible for us to do so. What was not possible before? We could not be free of it before, and now we can for all who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. And that verse is not a verse that's telling you to, in order to be a son of God, you better be led by the Spirit of God. It's not be led by the Spirit so that you can be God's child. What he is saying is normal life. The normal Christian life, the life as it ought to now be for the Christian is a life that is led by the Spirit. If this is what, who God is and what he's done for you, who else would you follow? Where else would we go? What else would we want to do? Verse 14 explains the different, in, 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 in different terms what verse 13, the second half, means. Those who put to death the deeds of the body, we do that as those who are led by the Spirit. It's said to us a different way in, um, in, in Galatians chapter 5. That sort of helps us to flesh out then, what does this mean then to be led by the Spirit rather than by the flesh? In Galatians 5 verses 18 and following, Paul uses that same led by the Spirit term again. If you're led by the Spirit, he says, you're not under law. Now, the works of the flesh out of law are evident. What are the works of the flesh? What what does our natural humanity end up producing? Impurity, sensuality, strife, jealousy, anger, rivalries, dissensions, division, envy, drunkenness, things like this. But, in verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit... Remember, he's talking about to be led by the Spirit, which has not produce the works of the flesh that look like that. Instead, the fruit of the Spirit looks like this. It's love, joy, peace, peace patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things, there is no law. To live by the Spirit... The Spirit within you, God said, I will write my law upon their hearts so that as the fruit of the Spirit is produced within us, in that fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit's working in us, those are the things that agree with the law of God because those are the things that agree with the character of God. These things which we would call the fruit of the Spirit, they're the fruit of the Spirit because this is what the Spirit produces within us. These are the things that look like God's family resemblance whose children you are. That's why that's what the Spirit produces. What else would He produce in His own children? So then, to to, to be led by the Spirit... producing that or seeing in our lives the fruit of the Spirit, this is what it is in verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Now, I have a military background. I was in the Air Force for many years. And one of the first things the Air Force taught us was how to keep in step. One of the first things the Air Force taught us was how to march so that we could all go someplace together. That never made any sense to me. Think about it for a minute. This is the Air Force, not the Army. If we want to go somewhere, we have planes for that. Why would we walk? Why would we march? It's the Air Force. And that, unfortunately, is is the dilemma or the dichotomy that Christians are living in, walking, trying to stumble around at that plane on the ground when we should be soaring, in a sense, by the Spirit. And yet they taught us to march because they taught us something about discipline and about yielding my will, even my timing, even with something as habitual as walking, yielding that to the cadence and instruction of another. Oh, that I could live my life not merely at the instant command, but to be in sync With the Spirit of God in the same way that I learned to walk in step in sync with the cadence that was called out by the one commanding the flight, commanding that marching of troops. That being in step, how is it that we would be in step with God? How do you get in step with God? God must have big steps. To be in, if we're going to live by the Spirit, if we have life by the Spirit, we should go where the Spirit goes. We should be in step with the Spirit. We should be in sync, or in musical terms, we should be in harmony with the Spirit. How do I know that I'm in step, in sync, or in harmony with the Spirit? Well, what I perceive the Spirit to be saying or how the Spirit to be leading, how does it line up with what the Spirit has already said? Or how does what I want to do or what I'm thinking or where I want to go, how does that line up with what the Spirit has already said in God's Word? To be in step with the Spirit is going to be in step and in harmony with what God has already said in His Word. When when we were overseas in Africa with Transworld Radio, it was a faith broadcasting mission. At one point, I was taking a trip into Mozambique. The Civil War had just ended. We drove over to Maputo, and then we drove north from there. We were traveling with the man who was the Through the Bible radio program producer. He was like J. Vernon McGee in that language in Mozambique. And so we're traveling to visit some of the churches where people would gather where they heard that broadcast. And we're going to meet some of those listeners. And as we're driving along, well, it's time to stop for lunch. So we stop for lunch. We stop at a place that has little plastic tables outside. And uh, we, they didn't have a lot on the menu. They had chicken. So we had chicken for lunch. And while we ate our lunch, dinner was running around on the ground underneath the table. And there as we're, as we're talking and visiting and, and Pastor Bia is such an outgoing, um, expressive, friendly, uh, and his, his, with a big booming voice and, and he's full of joy and he's telling stories and he's laughing. And all of a sudden people started coming out of the woodwork. I mean, we're out in the middle of nowhere and people started coming out of everywhere. And they're all saying, Pastor Bia, Pastor Bia, why? Because they had learned his voice. They'd never seen him before. They had no idea what he looked like, but they had heard his voice before. And so hearing it now, they knew that it was him. You want to be led by the Spirit? Get practiced in his voice. Learn his voice. Rehearse where he's already spoken to you. And you'll recognize when he speaks to you more personally and specifically in the midst of a circumstance or situation. For instance, being in step with the voice and the character of God, a man comes to you and he says, I've been praying about this, and God is leading me to divorce my wife and marry this other woman. No. Something else is leading you maybe toward that, but it is surely not the Spirit of God, because God himself has clearly said, and the Spirit will not lead you in ways that are contrary to what God by his Spirit has already clearly said. How will he lead? Well, he will lead us in ways that put ourselves at risk, he will lead us in ways that might be contrary to our own safety and security and even our prestige in the eyes of others. One of our men uh, shared with me this week a, a story about a time when he was on the job. He's working with these other guys, and they're, they're a crude couple of guys, and he wants, to, he wants to share something about his faith. He doesn't, he doesn't think it's going to be well-received, but at one point, in an opening in the conversation, he finds a way to share something about his faith in Christ, and man, it is just thrown back at him in in, uh, abusive, um, um, well, abusive curse words. And okay, well, I guess that didn't go real well. Well, two years later, one of those guys called him and said, I don't know, you probably don't remember me, but we worked on a job together. He says, yeah, yeah, I remember you. And uh, you said some things about your faith that um, we didn't treat you very well No, no. You, yeah, I remember that. Well, I need that God that you were talking about. It took two years. But that's what God God will do when we follow his leading. He had to put himself out there, and he experienced rejection because of it. And yet that's exactly what God led him to do. Think of it. That's exactly what God led Jesus to do, to put himself out there and be rejected by men in order that he might save them. And Jesus says to you, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And so the spirit keeps leading us in that direction, conversely, to be led by the spirit is not is contrasted in by resisting the spirit, by grieving the spirit or quenching the spirit. Those are two terms that are used. in First Thessalonians, Paul says, "Don't quench the spirit." Well what does that mean? You think about stopping something from working, like a fire, you quench your fire, you 're pouring water on it, you're putting it out. What is, what is it to quench the spirit then? Well, in, in, in 1 Thessalonians 5, to quench the Spirit is contrasted with the will of God. It's contrasted with following the word from God concerning his, his good will. And it's contrasted with abstaining from evil. So quenching the Spirit is not doing what the Spirit says. Quenching the Spirit is blocking or resisting the work and the work of the Spirit and the will of God. Quenching the Spirit is saying, no, I will not. He also says, don't grieve the Spirit. What does that mean? Ephesians 4, he says, don't grieve the Spirit by whom you were sealed. To grieve the Spirit is contrasted in that context. Well, it's, it's, it's described as corrupting talk in contrast with words that build up and encourage others. It's contrasted with bitterness and anger and slander instead of being kind to one another, tender hearted, and forgiving one another even as you have been forgiven. Those are the things that are contrasted in grieving the Spirit. To grieve the Spirit is to speak evil instead of truth. To grieve the Spirit is to be angry and slander and to be bitter towards someone instead of being forgiving, tender hearted, kind. To grieve the Spirit is to do contrary to how the Holy Spirit would lead us. An example. There are things you could do as a teen, as a child. There are things that you can do that would grieve your parents. And you want to do what you want to do. You know you're not supposed to. You know your parents are going to upset. You know there might be some consequences. But there's only consequences to you as a child or a teen because what you're doing grieves and is contrary to the will of your parent who ideally loves you and wants what is best for you. And I don't know of, in a, of um, well, if I know of some, they are few, of Christian parents of adult children who also at times are not grieved in the choices that they see their adult children then taking and participating in in life. And that's not because we want to control. It's not because we know best and they don't. It's because we surely want what is best for them and we see danger maybe that they don't see. But if that's a parallel, perhaps, on what it would be in asserting my own way and my own desires, what I want to do in the immediate now, forgetting the future and the consequences it might have, how might that play out in what it is for me as a child of God to grieve my Father in heaven? We have the same potential maybe to grieve our Father, to grieve His Spirit who would lead us, even as a child, whether young or adult, could grieve their own parents. And yet that's not a guilt trip, that's not an obligation, because again, our standing in verse 15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. This is not a, I need to measure up, I need to toe the line, I need to do what I'm supposed to do. As if I was under law and fearful of God's judgment, if I don't, we have received the the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. We don't serve out of a must-obey servitude left in fear of not measuring up, but we serve out of adopted as children in right relationship with our Father. Even as Jesus... In Mark 14, Jesus cries out, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. You see what Jesus crying out, Abba, Father, where that leads That doesn't lead in a self-serving direction. That leads in a trusting himself to his father direction. Think about the prodigal son. You know the story of the prodigal, perhaps. He comes home after after a um, a life of waste and dissolution where he throws away in foolishness his inheritance that he would insisted on receiving early. And he comes home hoping to at least be a servant among his father's staff on the estate or the family farm. And instead, his father runs down the road and greets him and receives him. And before he can even get out this little prepared speech about he's not worthy to be a son, he hopes that he can at least be a hired servant. His father has taken his signet ring off his own finger and put it on his son. He's taken his own robe, which shows his standing as the patriarch of the family. And he's taken that robe and he's draped it over his son's rags of a tunic that he's wearing. He has lifted his son in honor, even to his own standing among the family with his ring and with his robe and they throw a big party, and they kill the fatted calf, the calf that is prepared for some special occasion of joy, and this is it, and the older brother doesn't understand it. The prodigal brother doesn't fully understand and comprehend this great love that has been lavished upon him, he who was dead and now is alive. What do you think he did the next morning? Waking up, the ring still on his finger, the robe draped Over the footboard of the bed. What do you think the son did when he woke up the next morning? Lays around in bed expecting the household staff to wait on him hand and foot? Or did he rouse himself early? And did he eagerly set himself about his father's business? The one who had elevated him to rejoin him in it. I want to think the latter. I have to admit that there's still going to be some times of self-serving that leak in and interrupt it, but that's where I want to live, where the Spirit is leading. Where will He lead? In the context of Romans 8, He will lead us in verse 17 to participate in suffering, even as Jesus did. He will lead us through suffering into glory. He will lead us in bearing the first fruits, verse 23, bearing the fruit of the Spirit within us. He will lead us to be conformed more and more into the image of His Son. That's where I want to go. I want to I follow this Spirit's leading through suffering to glory, bearing fruit that looks more and more like Jesus. I want to hear His leading in his word, and among the wise counsel of others, and follow his leading, Lord, what would you have me to do? That today, leaving here, going out to whoever you're going to be around, and tomorrow, into the, the, the rhythms of the week, that there would be the opportunity for the, for the Spirit to interrupt the normal with his new, Lord, what would you have me to do here? What would you give me an opportunity to say here? How would you have me to be here toward this person whose needs I do not even fully know? And then to trust our loving God enough to follow his spirit even at cost. Father, would you do that this morning? Would you do that this week? Would this not merely be something that we learn of and will one day step into? But Father, would you as eager children, would you give us something of this that we need to see almost right away so that we could know, yeah, my God does want to lead me by his spirit into his new. And I don't know what all that means, but I'm willing to follow you, Lord that we would be willing, Father, to follow you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.